Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. After my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. (laughs) Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash getmore. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster and co-founder of the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we're going to take a look at the top polling news driving the week in politics, news, entertainment, and pop culture. So what are the top lines this week, Kristen? This week, the top lines are Carly Mentum. Is Carly Fiorina for real? And did a single poll drive Scott Walker out of the race? We will discuss 2016. Then Pope Francis is here in the U.S. Uh, Are Americans excited and in line with the Pope? We've got less than a month to go in Canada's elections. We'll take a brief check-in with our friends up north. Then Pew's put out a new study on web-only surveys. We'll talk about who gets left behind in the shift to new methodology. Fall is the best season, I believe, and now I have the polling to prove it. And finally, there's been a little chatter about the death of email. We'll dig into that and whether and how it's easy, how one can easily get people to open those emails based on creating good subject lines. So first, let's dig into 2016. So Margie, last time we did this show, I was in California. It was the morning before the big debate. Um, And obviously, a lot has changed since then. Uh, CNN was sort of the first out of the gate with a post-debate poll that was, you know, viewed as, as, you know, one of these major credible media polls. Um, It was done September 17th through 19th. And as usual, the way CNN defines Republican voters is they sort of lump in everybody who's a Republican or an independent voter who says they lean toward the Republicans. And they look at that chunk of people to say, okay, this is where Republican voters are at. So we've always known it might be kind of a wider universe than people who will actually vote in the primaries. And in past episodes, we've talked about that being, you know, a reason why Donald Trump might be overperforming his actual standing among Republican primary voters that, you know, for folks that are less tuned in, you know, ha ha, yeah, sure, I'm voting for Donald Trump, whatever. The reason I bring that up is that it's notable that this is a poll that is showing Trump losing support um, compared to where he was just two weeks earlier. So even though we're still using the sort of wider universe, uh, perhaps we are seeing the beginning of the decline of Trump. He's still in first place, Um, at 24%, and he's followed by Carly Fiorina, who makes a huge jump from 3% up to 15% um, among Republican uh, and Republican-leaning independents. In third place is Ben Carson, um, falling very slightly from 19% to 14%, again, still in third place. 
And then Marco Rubio making another huge jump from 3% up to 11%. Jeb Bush hangs in at fifth place. He stays steady at 9%, didn't gain or lose anyone. Ted Cruz basically staying the same place he was, um, had been at 7%, now he's at 6 uh, and on and on. The big loser um, was Scott Walker, and this was when the poll came out over the weekend. Um, the real buzz around it was, oh my God, Scott Walker is an asterisk. Um, he went from being someone that we were talking about as a top tier candidate. And now all of a sudden he is an afterthought in this poll. He gets less support than Rick Santorum. He gets less support than Rand Paul, less support than Chris Christie. And this being sort of like an astonishing discovery to encounter, um, when you consider that earlier on the summer, he was top tier. Yeah. Uh, and then of course, you know, no sooner had he come out as an asterisk. But then that was it. That was it. He was gone. And so, uh, you know, people were pretty surprised. It seems like it wasn't just one bad poll, but certainly we've talked on this show before about the feedback loop of how polls influence donor behavior and the ability to hire staff and the ability to get volunteers. And if all of a sudden you go from being top of the pack to being an asterisk, then donors are going to stop wanting to write those big fat checks that keep your operation going. And in the case of Walker's campaign, the news reports are that he had 90 staffers. Um, that's a that's a hungry beast to keep feeding. And when you're an asterisk in the polls, it's hard to raise the kind of money you need to sustain that. So right. And in uh, fact, they they would go to the press and say, "Well, I wish we he would do X, Y, and Z." So instead of writing checks, they're they're actually taking pot shots or speaking a little frankly to uh, to the press. And you saw his campaign manager speak very frankly to the press. You saw former staffers tweet their observations recently. You've seen a lot of people really speak very frankly in the last few days about. Uh, what happened at, at uh, the Walker campaign? It seems it's a little bit more than just that poll, but that they had a lot of eggs in this last basket, which was this last debate. And he had, I think, the fewest, he had the least amount of airtime out of anybody in the main stage, uh, I believe. It was like eight minutes or something like that. I mean, he really did not speak a whole lot. He didn't have a good moment. He hadn't hadn't had a good moment. We've talked about this before in a long time. And um, what strikes me about these results from the CNN poll, and really the polls now for a while, is how actually how sensitive the polls are to what's going on in the news, the news coverage about what's happening in the race. I mean, it's true. You know, there's been analysis. I think the New York Times upshot did some analysis that showed uh, that. Uh, uh, higher propensity Republican voters are less likely to be Trump supporters than overall, meaning that the Trump bubble or the Trump surge is a, a little bit inflated, but not overly so. It's not imaginary. It was never yep. fictional, um, but maybe a little bit over uh, overestimated by methodology. Nonetheless, it's all you know pretty sensitive. The fact that Walker fell to the bottom reflects his performance, his performance in the debates and out sort of on the trail. Uh, the fact that Fiorina surged reflects the, her incredible debate performance. The fact that Rubio surged, in fact, also reflects his debate performance, and he didn't really get that much coverage. I mean, but he you know, had a, he turned in a pretty strong performance. So I think, you know, these numbers actually are quite heartening in terms of, you know, you're getting the sense that Republicans nationally, not just voters in early primary states, are really paying some amount of attention and getting, you know, getting the storyline. Now, does the storyline reflect, you know, the true candidates' capabilities and what's going on on the ground? You know, that's a separate argument. But these polls really do reflect people getting the information that, that's out there for them to get. And it, it raises, in my mind, you know, the 
sort of almost terrifying power that pundits uh, <laughs> like your hosts here, Margie and I, included. I mean, the, the sort of weird maybe it's my podcast. It's our podcast and my joke that I made about Scott Walker last time that that sunk him. <laughs> that did it, man. <laughs> Not just this show, but I mean, if you think about it, you know, when Margie, when you and I go on Fox, I mean. If, if we're on there and we're talking about, like, who won or who lost the debate and we're saying, oh, you know, I think Rubio had a really strong performance, there are people that watch the news coverage of the debate. Maybe they didn't right. watch the debate for themselves, but all of a sudden, you know, when they're talking over the water cooler at work the next day, oh, I hear Carly Fiorina really knocked it out of the park. That's and maybe right. they see a clip online. And so really, like, the, in a weird way, kind of the spin room itself and winning, you know, on Twitter or people tweeting that your candidate is doing well, like, this stuff has this weirdly maybe outsized power to shape uh, shape how the polls are looking. And if you take a look, that there were two polls that asked people um, who watched the debates or who claimed that they watched uh, the debates, um, regardless of who you support, who do you think did the best job? And here, you know, you have Fiorina just killing it in yeah. both the CNN poll and the morning consult poll. Um, followed in, in the uh, morning consult poll, Trump is second with just about a quarter of people saying he won the debate. Trump is third in the CNN poll. Um, but And then Rubio actually does much better in the CNN poll than he did in the morning consult poll. But Walker comes in last yeah. in both polls. And and actually, Walker winds up down with Santorum, Pataki, and Jindal, who weren't even in the main <laughs> debate. Yeah. He actually does worse than Lindsey Graham. Well, who, Lindsey Graham did a great job. He was just talked about drinking. <laughs> <laughs> when I did my focus groups for Fusion, all of the, the respondents, you know, a lot of them actually said they thought Lindsey Graham should drop out because all he does is talk about Iraq. This was their words, not mine. Um, but then also when we asked the question of who would you most want to get a drink with, Lindsey Graham was then also. <laughs> He's going really hard for that vote. <laughs> He's uh, pandering yes, to the uh, drinking vote. But yes, this Fiorina thing is really interesting. Um, and also, you know, I, if you look at the combined support in CNN September poll, that was the one where Trump plus Carson added up to 51%. So a majority of Republicans picking either Trump or Carson. Now that's fallen. It's back down to 38% um, combined support for Trump and Carson. And so the, I guess the question is, do you, do you have to consider Fiorina in the outsider candidate bucket? Or, I mean, Fiorina is somebody that establishment Republicans at this point are not, like, rejecting. They're right. not in, like, Fiorina freakout. Mode. Right. Um, so... You know, I guess if you include Fiorina in there, yes, you still do kind of have this like a majority of Republican voters voting for an outside candidate. And it is the case still that the top three people on the Republican side have combined to hold a total of zero days of elected office in their <laughs> lives. Right. Um, but Fiorina is interesting to me because she is someone that if you're looking for an outsider, she's definitely an outsider. But she's also not someone that has establishment Republicans and pundits kind of like in a in a in a flip out mode. And she's not totally running as an outsider either. I mean, she's trying to walk that line as well. I mean, she's not saying, you know, the Republican Party, you know, stinks and we have to throw the whole thing out. I mean, she's not she doesn't have that kind of I mean, you have some more you have some electeds who are running for office more critical of the Republican Party than I get the sense she is 
Um, which, you know, be that as it may. I, the Fiorina thing, I think, is fascinating. I mean, she, I mean, we've been saying on the show for a while that she does a, you know, good job when she speaks. She's very, very eloquent. She's very, you know, she throws, you know, sharp elbows, very well spoken. And it was no surprise, I think, to either of us that she did well on the main, that she excelled on the main stage. I mean, that was clearly a great. Uh, venue for her. I mean, I you know not only that. I think the the what this means for Republican women and women voters in general. Something that we're going to be talking about now. I bet for a while. Um, the in this same CNN poll, she's only down four from Trump among Republican women. She's down 12 from Trump uh, among Republican men. That's a pretty big difference. Um, I don't know how much of that is women wanting to vote for Fiorina or women rejecting Trump, probably some of both, um, for all the obvious <laughs> reasons that women might not want to vote for Trump. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's clear, I think, that she stands out from the field. I mean, you know, you've heard me say this. My, you know, my daughter, who is never, who's too young to really know exactly what we were watching or what the point was, but it was the first time she watched the news for any sort of, you know, for more than 30 seconds. And she immediately said, that's, you know, I like her. She's wearing blue. She looks, this has probably never been said about Carly Fiorina, she looks like she teaches preschool. <laughs> and, and... That, is, that is a mark of high praise. I know, right? That's, you know, that's her, that's what she knows, you know? That's what she knows, right? And um, uh, do you think she lives in a castle and do you think she wears that she outfit? She probably does. She <laughs> yeah. probably does. Does she live in a castle? Does she wear that outfit at parties and to work at other, at other times? That was another question. But, you know, this, she was trying to figure it out. And um, based on my Facebook feed, a lot of my Democratic friends, their daughters said, yeah, I like Carly Fiorina. Now, she did really well, but also it's very striking that there's one woman. And I think that's, you know, if we're talking about two strong women candidates uh, who, you know, have different strengths and weaknesses, I mean, I think Carly Fiorina is going to have to do more than simply be a good debater in order to be ultimately, you know, presidential timber. Um, nonetheless, I think that's a great development for women, period. Even if she doesn't talk about quote-unquote women's issues, I don't have to agree with her, obviously, on anything for me to think that that's a good development. It certainly could be an interesting development uh, for engaging women, Republican women voters, and, you know, how, how does it reach out, you know, how does it appeal to swing women voters, and, you know, what do Republican men think? I mean, I think there are a lot of things that remain to be seen and that this, how this could play out. I, I, I'm with you, and I think I'm frankly just kind of excited about the prospect that, you know, when the next poll or two comes out, if, if the Trump implosion, if this is a Trump implosion or at least a Trump deflation that we are seeing, um, and we wind up with a situation where Carly Fiorina, like, tops a single poll, a national poll at some point, how cool would that be that for both parties there's a woman kind of at the top of the polls? In both parties. Like, it would be you, great. I, I just feel like that would be neat. Um, so, okay, taking my, like, girl power hat off for a second. I think it would be great. I mean, uh, yeah. I should add, however, the, you know, speaking of the Trump thing, the CNN poll still shows, nonetheless, that more a plurality or half, depending on the question, of Republicans think that Trump would be – the best candidate to handle a variety of issues, immigration, the economy, yeah. and so on. So, you know, so she, as I said, you know, being a good debater may be necessary. It's not sufficient. She's going to have to, you know, there, there's going to have to be a step two, a second act. 
Yep, I think that's right. And in that CNN poll, I mean, Trump's favorables, Trump's unfavorables um, among voters overall is pretty high. It's his fave unfave is 31-59. So by like a, oh, a two to one margin, people don't like him generally. But then among Republicans, a majority still have a positive view of him. I think that can, I think that that's going to go down. I think already just in the last day or two, you know, he's now boycotting Fox News again, like, I, I've started to feel, and this is not based on data, this is like pure instinct and inside the bubble, and of course that's always flawed when it comes to Trump, but if the media starts getting bored with the Trump Act, if it's like, okay, we've been doing this for two months now, we get it, we get what you're about, haha. eventually I wonder if those numbers will revert back to what they were before his surge. Yeah, I don't know, we'll see. I mean, then you have, you know, somebody who is undercovered by the media given where he is, and that's Ben Carson. He doesn't get lavish media. I mean, the past couple of days he's got a lot of media attention because of his comments about Muslims. But before that, he got basically no coverage considering where he's been in the polls. You know, it's just been, holy cow, look at Ben Carson. Okay, moving on. You know, <laughs> that, was, that was basically the beginning and end of his coverage. And since we've started this show, he's been popular. It's not like he just came out of nowhere. He's been doing quite well for quite some time yep. it's now been just the slow build and that's without any kind of over coverage you know without any being any sort of media darling or with the media trying to take him down i mean really neither you know just again until the last couple of days so we'll see how if he gets now more press scrutiny what happens if anything to him so margie what's going on on the democratic side so on the democratic side you know it's not so sleepy on the democratic side i mean a couple of things happened so one cnn released a poll that showed uh clinton uh ha have a bounce back up nationally among democrats and this is uh i think uh, new from the last few weeks where there's been a steady stream of polls that show her slipping relative to sanders this was a, a first clear indicator of her regaining some strength relative to sanders um again that's national that's different than New Hampshire, where he's consistently up. Um, but that's something that I think uh, uh, was newsworthy and noteworthy. The other thing that I think is, uh, you know, we don't have an answer for is the what happens next for Joe Biden. In the CNN poll, he's basically tied with um, uh, is it CNN. Yes, the CNN poll, he's basically tied with Sanders. So it's 42 for Clinton, 24 Sanders, 22 Biden. Again, he's not announced. Um, and then in the cross tabs, um, you see uh, it's a much closer race with among whites and with men. Clinton is uh, she's either at or exceeds majority support with women and non-whites. But um, the sample skews very old, as one of our listeners pointed out. They don't really have a lot of younger Democrats at all. They don't even have a uh, breakout for any Democrats under 50. They just can't provide any break, any information about Democrats under 50. That's how uh, how old this, this sample is. Um, then you saw a poll that came out this morning uh, from Bloomberg and Ann Seltzer, who we had on the show a couple weeks ago. And it showed a, a narrower three-way race. And again, this is national, national Democrats. And that has Clinton 33, Biden 25, Sanders 24. So again, you have Sanders and Biden basically the same. Um, and, uh, and Clinton a little bit ahead. They asked voters overall, not just Dems, but overall. And half say they want to see Biden enter the race. So, you know, it's not quite the, you know, 
massive uproar mandate. The whole nation is clamoring for Biden to enter the race. Um, it may not have to be, you know, for him to get in the race. I mean, I think there's still a very strong case to be made here that he should get in the race based on the polling. Obviously, he has personal considerations that, you know, he, he needs, I think, it seems like a little more space to figure out while he's keeping the door open, or at least rather than closing it before he's fully made up his mind. But the polling shows, you know, that there's a case here for him. I mean, there's a, you know, potentially a path for him to enter. Um, I think the CNN poll suggests that that most of the support for Biden comes from Clinton rather than from Sanders. But that may change. I mean, that may change as, you know, if he enters and as things start to move around a little bit. I wonder if there's any value. I mean, so a lot of these these polls, they're always testing Joe Biden in the mix. And I, I saw some journalists I follow sort of debating today on Twitter. Does it make sense for pollsters to do their main Democratic primary ballot test, including a candidate who hasn't announced? I mean, it is now we are in fall. Fall is here. It's not the summer anymore. And sure, Joe Biden can jump in. But at this point, doesn't it make more sense to do a ballot based on who's running now rather than do your ballot based on a hypothetical. Um, I guess it depends on if you think the odds that Joe Biden jumps in are, are greater than 50%. But I thought that was a pretty good point. I mean, I, I, I love both of these polls. And I, you know, I think it's very interesting to see how Joe Biden stacks up against uh, you know, Clinton and Sanders. But ultimately, I mean, I think that it's there's a less than 50 percent chance that he runs based right. on relatively little information, having never talked to having not talked to Joe Biden, having no <laughs> nothing to base this on. But like, you know, the vibes, vibes things <laughs> I see on TV, the vibes in the universe, not data. Um, you know, I guess I just wonder, you know, if Biden they've had Biden in the I think is this this is the CNN in the CNN poll going back at least until June and. You know, he's always been hovering around 14, 15, 20 percent ish. Um, how much further ahead would Clinton be or how much closer would the race be between Clinton and Sanders if you really had just never been polling Biden because he's not running? Yeah, I mean, I guess, and I, I should we should go back and check, right? Because some of these polls, they ask, well, who would your second choice be? And they show, you know, the reallocated. And I guess the other thing to remember is what's the purpose of these media polls? Now, if you are, you know, if you're a campaign, if you're doing internal polling, you test it every which way. You test it yep. with the person you think might come in because you need to know. You test it without them. Um, you test the exact language that it's going to, you know, how the ballot order, if it's already set in a state. You know, California, they have ballot labels. You know, we had a candidate who's, who wanted to call himself astronaut because he was an astronaut, but someone said, no, you can't call yourself astronaut because you're not currently an astronaut anymore. You used to be an astronaut, so we released a video of showing him in space and then, 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 anyway, the court ruled that he could label himself astronaut. Other people want to be mom, and so on. That's in California, right? Other states, you can't put that kind of label. So you want to test your, you want to have your poll language exactly reflect what the how it's going to be on the ballot. But for the media, these media polls, 
at this stage of the game, they're not necessarily trying to predict what exactly is going to happen in November. At some level, they they want to make news, you know, and yep. and making news means testing Joe Biden because we don't know if he's getting in. Yep. So, you know, if you can put string together a few questions that show, hey, he's not even in, but he's doing pretty well. That's news, and it's in, it's not you know it's not just it's not a troll poll. That's actually news that we want as you know consumers of political media and polls. So, um, so I, you know, I hear the point. Like why test somebody who's not in when it's getting to be a little late to jump in? But you know, uh, at another level, I mean, it's making news because there's a there's a real theme here that you know that may in fact be influencing his decision or maybe influencing other voters. Is my is my concern about testing Joe Biden? Is that my argle bargle moment of the show? <laughs> my cranky old argle bargle. Okay, so he's not even is- in the race. <laughs> Not even in the race. Why are we pulling him? So, uh, listeners, um, Margie posted a, an excellent uh, thing on Facebook the other day. It was a, an article about Donald Trump, and in the caption when she posted it, she confessed she had not even read the article, but was sharing it just for the uh, the caption and, and the photo. And it was a photo of Donald Trump, and somebody had sort of written in it, written on it, argle bargle, like in a in a word cloud, as if he was saying, like a crayon, like it was like a crayon, which made it even more funny. Argle bargle, um, and so we're we're wondering if it's, there's a way we can bring that back, bring argle bargle into the mainstream. All right, I digress. <laughs> uh, so the other big news this week is the visit of Pope Francis to the United States. Uh, he started off on Wednesday in Washington D.C., where he spoke at the White House, uh, met with President Obama and other sort of senior officials. Um, conducted mass at the National Basilica of the Immaculate Conception, um, and will be in Washington, D.C. to address Congress on Thursday before moving on uh, to, I believe, Philadelphia and New York. Uh, Lots of polling about the Pope floating out there, including some done by your friendly co-host here. Um, So uh, I did a poll in partnership with Democratic firm Heart Research. Um, We partnered for uh, the Shriver Report, uh, Maria Shriver, uh, who uh, I believe Maria Shriver was John F. Kennedy's niece. Yes. I, I, not 100% sure on, on sort of the Kennedy family tree. Um, Her but, mother know, is I'm, Eunice, who is a sister of JFK, and her mother, Eunice, married Sergeant Shriver. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, and so, you know, very interested in the question of, how do Americans and how do American Catholics think about the Pope and how have their attitudes about the church shifted? Um, so our poll, we did, conducted a poll of American Catholics. And um, what we found was that, you know, people really, American Catholics really do think that what Pope Francis and his teachings have to say matches up with their beliefs, either all or most of the time. 77% said either all or most of the time. On the other hand, only 15% of Catholics say that um, the Catholic Church is totally in step with their social or cultural values. Another 43% say somewhat in step with your social or cultural values. Um, So, you know, added together, that's 58% who are saying, yep, in step with my values, which is slightly lower than the 77% who say that the Pope's teachings match up with what they think it means to be a good Catholic 77% of the time. So it's not completely apples and oranges. The question wording is a little bit different. Um, But sort of throughout the survey, we find uh, American Catholics viewing the Catholic Church in a very different way than they view Pope Francis, that that most Catholics view the Catholic Church as being 
you know, pretty, pretty conservative, uh, kind of focused on institutional power, um, not having necessarily done enough to address um, the sex abuse scandals, while still, you know, being positive about the church. Catholics are not anti the Catholic Church, um, and an overwhelming number of them think that the Catholic Church um, is a force for good in the world. Um, however, when you look at what Catholics think about Pope Francis, um, you know, huge majorities think that he's doing good things for the Catholic Church. 86% say that they think it's a good thing that Francis has emphasized teachings of the church around things like the environment and looking out for the poor, while sort of de-emphasizing things like sex and reproductive rights. Um, while 14% of Catholics think this is a bad thing because it's weakening the institution and moving the focus away. Um, so there's certainly, it's not all Catholics. And, and you hear, you know, I think particularly among conservative Catholics, there's more sort of consternation about, um, you know, is the Pope sort of, does he need to stay in his lane right. you know, to, to, you know, sort of be casual about it? Um, but the generally, I mean, American Catholics on the whole, very positive about Francis, and they view the man as sort of different from the institution um, in, in their views of things. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's fascinating. I mean, first of all, there's a billion polls out that show the Pope is popular, right? This is clearly, we've talked about it before here. I mean, he's hugely, hugely popular um, with Catholics, with non-Catholics, with whomever, and for, you know, for reasons that, you know, I think most listeners can understand and, and figure out. I think what's interesting is because this is Washington, you hear all of this talk about, you know, as you say, like looking at the Pope through a political lens, like is he turning Catholics away from the church? Is he pulling the church too far to the left too quickly? Are Republicans who embrace the Pope going to be in trouble from the right, um, you know, so on and so forth. In a way, you know, is he gone too far to the left on things like climate change, or is he, frankly, just this is just really about style because he hasn't actually, you know, loosened any of the, you know, uh, the church's. Um, uh, teachings on some of these social issues. I mean, these, this is the political dialogue that's sort of a constant hum, even when the Pope is not in town, that now is kind of dialed up to 11. Um, but I think, you know, the polling suggests that it's, at least your poll and some of the other polls that I've seen, that, you know, it's this pretty small group that feels that the Pope has gone too far, that they really disagree with him or that he's gone too far to the left or that they feel less tied to the church than they did before, whether you're talking about Catholics or non-Catholics. I mean, wouldn't you say, wouldn't you agree based on your data and everything else you've seen yeah so so his the the pope's favorables are are really fascinating when you when you look at um polls that are of of all americans and you you do some breakdowns so the poll that i did was just of catholics um but there's this really interesting poll i think it's the washington posted um you know favorable or unfavorable view of the pope favorable or unfavorable view of the catholic church and they found that overall you know for catholics Catholics are really positive about both the church and the pope. Church favorables, 81%. Pope favorables, 86%. But when you go to the United States overall, the pope maintains those pretty high favorables, 70% favorable, while the church's fave on fave is only at 55% favorable. Right. Um, and that actually, you know, this idea that like the most hardcore Catholics are the ones that are kind of like, oh, what's Pope Francis doing? Is he, is he taking things in a weird direction? The vast majority don't think so. 91% of people who attend Catholic Mass weekly have a favorable view of Pope Francis. Um, and for those who are, are monthly or less often, it's, you know, it's still 82%. It's still very high. I think the thing that was fascinating is that people who actually don't identify with any religion, no religion, have a more positive view of Pope Francis than, than um, people who are Protestants 
uh, who do identify as Christian but not Catholic. Hmm. That, that that was fascinating to me, that if you're sort of like just not religious at all, you find something a lot to like in Pope Francis. Whereas if you are Christian but not Catholic, there's like a slightly less, and I think that may be perhaps some of that political conservative you're seeing. You know, people who are political conservatives but they're not Catholics sort of getting a little bit up in arms about, you know, the talk about climate change and things. And, and it's also the case that the, when the Washington Post poll broke the Pope's favorables down by political ideology, his favorables are highest among liberals, 79%, and lowest among conservatives, 62%. Again, still great, great numbers across the board, but you see a much bigger gap on favorables toward the Catholic Church versus the Pope among liberals. And in our study of American Catholics, we ask people, do you think the Catholic Church is liberal, moderate, or conservative? And generally, people said conservative, no matter what their own personal ideology was. But when you asked them, what do you think Pope Francis's ideology is? Liberals say, I think Pope Francis is liberal. Moderates say, I think Pope Francis is moderate. And conservatives say, I think Pope Francis is moderate or conservative. It was kind of split between the two. So people really sort of are able to see in Pope Francis their own sort of vision for the Catholic Church. Um, I think that's incredible. I just think that finding is incredible. And, you know, I think, I mean, at some level, I guess it's not a surprise, right? Because you want to feel like, the, you know, you have some kinship with the Pope in, in terms of issues. So I think that makes sense. But I also find it, I mean, I just find it fascinating. That's, I think, one of the most interesting findings I've seen on all the Pope the Pope research that's out uh, another, there. Another big sort of, you know, uh, interesting sort of, you know, pattern we noticed in the data is that on a lot of these questions about, you know, should the Catholic Church have greater acceptance for people who have, you know, done a variety of things that are that run contrary to, to Catholic doctrine. Um, and overwhelmingly, huge majorities of Catholics strongly favor, for instance, more acceptance of those who have uh, divorced and been remarried. Huge numbers strongly favoring greater focus on income inequality and looking out for the poor. Um, a huge numbers agreeing that divorced Catholics should be allowed to take communion. You know, there's a lot, whenever it comes to questions of forgiveness and judgment, that there's just this huge, huge, huge belief that, um, you know, in order to be a good Catholic, you can have done a whole bunch of all, different all things. kinds of things. Yeah, had an abortion, be pro-choice. I mean, you know, basically, I mean, according to your survey, I mean, majorities of Catholics say you can be a good Catholic and do all sorts of things. I think, you know, the Post had a had a question where they said, "Do you think it's a sin?" And I think there the number is a little bit lower because I guess that's a different kind of question yeah. than can you be a good Catholic. Um, but still, nonetheless, you still see a same the similar pattern, which is you know a lot a lot of acceptance for a variety kinds of, of behavior. Yeah, well, and, and what actually when I was going through with the, the Shriver Report folks and with the Heart Research folks and we were putting together the questionnaire, one of the things that I brought up, because I'm, I'm a Catholic and so I'm like trying to think through this as, okay, as a Catholic, like how would I interpret these questions? And so, you know, even as someone who views a lot of these things they're talking about as like, yeah, that, that is a sin, but, you know, a big part of Catholicism is also forgiveness, um, the sacrament of reconciliation. And so the idea that, yeah, we're all sinners. The Pope has come out and said that he's a sinner, but the idea that the church should really put this emphasis on, you can be forgiven for things. I think that you see a lot of people really gravitating toward that as a focus of Pope Francis's. I mean, it made mm -hmm. headlines a few weeks ago when he came out and said, 
he's going to give priests greater latitude to forgive abortion. And everybody's like, oh, my God, the Catholic Church is forgiving abortion. It's like, well, they always have. It's just now there's an emphasis on really saying, you know, they're not changing church doctrine on the life issue per se, but are, are putting the emphasis in a different place. Right. And I think that's been a big sort of hallmark of Francis's papacy so far. He has not actually changed an awful lot of church doctrine, but he changes the focus of things. And, and the pattern I'm seeing in the data sort of reflects that that's where Catholics are at too. I mean, you can say, for instance, do you, would you be comfortable with if your child decided to terminate a pregnancy and only you know, a very small percentage of Catholics say that they would be comfortable if their child chose to terminate a pregnancy. A very small percentage of Catholics, you know, maybe less than you might suspect, said, oh, I'd be very comfortable if my son or daughter was gay and wanted to marry someone of the same sex. So in terms of their own personal behaviors and attitudes about how they want to conduct their own lives, they're still a little more kind of small C conservative, but are really enthusiastic about the Pope's emphasis on like, look, we're not trying to kick people out and say, oh, you're a bad Catholic because you did X. We need to be very inclusive and welcoming and forgiving. And to just 15-second tangent, I think this has huge lessons for the Republican Party. Right. When people say, how do we expand our tent? Does it involve changing our positions on a bunch of things? Or does it mean being more having an emphasis less on like ideological purity and more on, Hey, there's lots of different ways to be a Republican. Come on in. We accept you. Welcome to the club. Right. So, okay. I no, no, but it's not a digression. I think talking about the Pope in, in a political context is important. I mean, this is, you know, this is how people are, are viewing him here anyway. And you have a question in your poll, you know, is he a religious figure or is he a religious and political figure or is he a political figure? And people seemed kind of divided. I mean, mostly religious, but it, you know, it was a pretty high number. I think 44% that said he's a political and religious figure. Um, and, I, I, you know, if you view the Pope as, you know, through the lens of like a candidate, what makes him so popular and political candidates so unpopular? Obviously, there's lots of reasons why. But one reason why is because he's so truly authentic and he looks like he really wants to be with the people. You know, he really he he seems to really enjoy the sort of retail politics, if you will, uh, of his job and, and has a real authenticity to him in addition to this openness and tolerance, regardless of what his his actual policy positions are. And I think that, as you say, a very good lesson for everybody. So uh, it remains to be seen what he will say in his address to Congress on Thursday. Um, but I just need to get to the airport. Soon. That's my <laughs> that's my last Pope traffic hurdle. <laughs> so I have to get to the airport around I that time. Too. Okay, we will both be <laughs> we are both in the same boat. I think all, it won't be as bad if you are not because that's not like where the whole world is getting. You know, that's not where like all the people are trying to gather the way they were today, where you had like all of humanity kind of downtown i think to, i think when he goes to speak to congress you won't see quite as many people just sort of lining up around but yeah remains to be seen so now turning northward um our canadian neighbors will be heading to the polls on october 19th um for their parliamentary elections and the race right now is sort of between three major parties there's the ruling conservative party of canada um, the, the Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, he is a member of the Conservative Party. Um, there's the Liberal Party of Canada, um, whose leader is Justin Trudeau. Uh, Trudeau being sort of a famous political name in Canada, akin to kind of the Bush or Clinton name. Um, and then there's the New Democratic Party, 
which is a party that has has really sort of risen in recent years, um, sort of cannibalizing a lot of support from the liberals. Um, and now sort of both of those parties are kind of fighting over over both the left and the middle in this election. So here in the U.S., we have 538. Um, and in Canada, they have 308. Um, the uh, the blog there that sort of follows uh, data and polling and things about Canadian elections, um, I'm so amused that it's called 308. That's based on the number of members of parliament in the current Canadian parliament. Um, and in the current government, it's the conservative party that has a majority of seats. Um, but it's really unlikely that they will continue to have a flat out majority um, moving forward. And actually, at the, the current moment, the race looks like a bit of a three-way tie. You have the Conservative Party of Canada um, in the polling averages is around 30%. You have the New Democratic Party at 31%. You have the Liberal Party at 30%. So this is really, really, really close stuff. Um, you also have the um, sort of a, a party of, it was like a Quebec, I believe it's a, 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 a Quebec party um, that's, I think, at a 3%. And then you have uh, the Green Party at 6%. So it seems really, really, really unlikely at this point that anyone will get a majority. They, they also do seat projections, um, because as we learned with the British election, just because someone's up or down in the polls, um, you still have to look kind of on a seat-by-seat -seat basis to figure out who's really going to um, right. win the most. They, they call them ridings instead of districts, um, ridings in Canada. Oh, that's um, a good name. Yeah, but still, no, you know, none of the parties at this point um, are really projected to be able to get a majority on their own. And so the question is, you know, the liberals right now only have 39 seats in government, but they're projected now to get somewhere over 100. Um, the New Democratic Party currently has 95, and they're projected to wind up with a, a little over 100. So I guess, you know, the, the question then becomes, who will form a coalition together? Right. Um, you know, can the cons do the conservatives need to win an outright majority? Um, you know, who, who will band together at the end of this? Because it seems like no one on their own is going to be able to run a majority government. And now, then, you know, the other thing, I mean, from a polling perspective, I mean, you saw this in the Israeli election and in the English election is, you know, are the polls able to predict what's going to happen? Or are you going to have some, I mean, these, these polls here, this average currently is very close. That was what was true in the UK and the Israeli, uh, Israeli elections turned out to not be as close as people had thought. Is that going to be true here in Canada? And also what I don't know the answer to is uh, how do they do a lot of their polling online like they did in the UK, which was almost exclusively online or what's that? What are the methodological, you know, uh, pros and cons and challenges in, in uh, Canadian elections? relative to, to some of the other places we've looked at. So we still have about a month until the election. We will keep an eye on it. Um, if you listeners are interested in us following the Canadian election in the way that we sort of checked in periodically on the British election, um, let us know. Tweet at us. Send us notes on Facebook. Let us know if you're interested in having us follow this uh, and dig a little bit deeper into uh, the wonderful world of Canadian politics. Okay, cool. So next up is Pew. Did Pew is always a great resource of what's going on in terms of methodology. And both Pew and Gallup, although it seems like Pew does a little bit more online experimentation than Gallup, um, released a report, but they both do, um, released a report showing uh, that they have some data comparing their web-only surveys to a telephone survey and also to mail survey and really found that there's just not a whole lot of difference between the methodologies unless you're asking about 
something where you'd expect to find a difference, like about internet usage, um, where obviously you're going to find a difference. Now, um, you know, they looked at uh, what the average difference in a response was, and it's, you know, on average, it's about one point difference or, you know, somewhere between zero and two points dip fluctuation between their telephone uh, panel and, or their telephone survey and their online panel that they use, um, suggesting to me that if you look at this, then, then you can be led to believe that an online methodology is really makes a lot of sense since it, it is uh, it is generally far less expensive than a telephone methodology and you get around some of the uh, cell phone uh, issues and response rate issues that you see increasing uh, when it comes to telephone. However, their online panel is a very is not the same kind of online panel that if you just wanted to go, you know, do an online poll tomorrow, you'd find. I mean, their online panel is recruited to be a uh, representative sample uh, of uh, people who, um, uh, you know, who represent the full country, not just people who are exclusively online. Um, and it's uh, it's done in a way meeting Pew's very high standard. If you were to try to replicate that, I'm not sure you'd save that much money in the end. But it does tell you, though, what has been going on now for a while. I thought it would have happened a little bit sooner, which is, you know, online, the online methodology catching up essentially to telephone. And it doesn't quite seem like that's the case overall nationwide looking at uh, methodologies that are accepted from the press and so on. But you do see the gap between telephone and online narrowing. I remember back a few years ago, Pew did two really great reports that have still kind of informed my thinking about methodology and and what you should and shouldn't be doing. One of them was a report where they did a survey – of folks that were cell phone only, and they did a survey of folks that were sort of, you had a landline, but you were called on the cell phone, and then they looked just at the people on the landline. And um, they wound up finding that, you know, on certain questions, you know, once you began kind of controlling for, for demographics, that there really weren't as big a difference between um, landline and cell phone people as you might expect on things like political attitudes. like. There were slight differences, but it wasn't as big. I mean, this was, I think, 2012, though, and of course, those those gulfs have certainly, I'm sure, they've widened. Um, but then they also did a study where they checked in on response rates, and they found that, you know, if you really harassed people and you you sent them letters in the mail and you said like, please, 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 we're going to call you, take our survey, you could bump your response rate up, but you actually didn't change the results of your study that 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 much. Um, and I also saw, I think Gallup may, it was either uh, Gallup or Nielsen. Oh, shoot. Uh, I, think it was, I think it was Pew and, and Google partnered together to do a study to compare the Google Consumer Survey's results with a sort of Pew national sample. And when you look at like what's, what's different, you know, it's not that everything's different. If you ask questions about things like political attitudes or you ask things about certain consumer variables, differences aren't big, even though the demographics are very different. Um, but on certain things, and this will not come as a surprise, but if you're at doing a survey about technology and the internet, you are going to get really different answers <laughs> if you do a web-only survey versus a survey of people who don't do surveys on the internet. Um, so, you know, this is, it's the subject matter of your survey method, survey matters when you're trying to make some of these methodological determinations. Um, I was pretty fascinated that their unweighted web sample um, had an awful lot of people who were married. Um, only a quarter were senior citizens, though. Um, and, you know, about 42% of them were Republicans or leaned Republicans. Um, the non-web sample was really old, but somehow less Republican. 
it was 56% of the people they contacted who were non-internet sample. Um, 56% of them were senior citizens. Um, actually, then you also had 16% who were black, non-Hispanic. Um, you had a huge proportion who were high school grads or less, and a huge proportion whose incomes were $20,000 a year or less. Um, so your demographics of the non-web sample supplement were like way outside the norm. Um, and in ways that you would think would probably make the sample more Republican, and yet it was actually less Republican than the web sample itself. That just stuck out to me as like kind of weird, but interesting. Um, and you know, I think shows the, the potential upside of doing this hybrid research where you've got some online, you've got some, you know, you're, you're, you're missing fewer people. But really at this point, you know, coverage is not the problem when it comes to internet surveys. Most people have some kind of access to the internet now. Right, right. Um, my, the know, digital often, divide between the haves and the have-nots, that is, it, you know, it, it is much smaller than people feared at one yeah, time. Yeah, the, the, the digital divide is smaller, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people are all willing to take online surveys right. in sort of equal propensities. Exactly. And so um, to me, this made me feel better about a lot of the research that I do. Um, but Margie, as you noted, not all web surveys are created equal. And so something like what Pew does here with their American Trends panel, they're recruiting people in um, and, you know, most of their panels participate via the web, but some don't. Uh, Meanwhile, that's very different than if you do one of those Google surveys where they're doing that river sampling and kind of catching people around the internet, um, or something like SurveyMonkey, which you know John Cohen from SurveyMonkey is great. Used to be Washington Post. Um, we definitely need to get we him on the to show at some point show. to talk about what, how SurveyMonkey works. But the way they do it is, you know, they append political or what have whatever questions to the end of the like, hey, what day should we do our, uh, you know, get together? What restaurant should we go to for brunch what book should we read for book club like when you create a survey monkey survey survey monkey tacks questions onto the end and that's how they do some of their public polling and those are all very different uh than what pew is talking about here so and this it all dovetails nicely with a question that a listener and twitter follower asked us giancarlo sopo said do you think political campaigns will be using online panels anytime soon you know, you are seeing, as one of our other uh, listeners and followers noted, I mean, you are seeing some news outlets like NBC use SurveyMonkey, CBS worked with YouGov, um, use online format because, of, you know, to cut costs. Um, I think that's different from a political campaign. Again, it goes back to the question of, you know, what are you doing the poll for? And if it's to drive news and get something that makes sense, that is interesting for your reporters and other properties to cover, online is great. If there's a difference between two points or one point at this stage of the game, you know, it, that's, that's I think, a, a cost that a lot of outlets maybe are willing to live with. If you're talking about a political campaign, I think there's still some reluctance for a political campaign to move uh, online um, for a variety of reasons. I mean, one, if you're talking about a national poll, the feasibility of doing it online is is uh, is greater. If you're talking about someone who's running for legislative office or for Congress, the ability to 
be able to just define the political boundaries with an online sample is much harder, is more expensive, um, requires more sample, more names, special vendors. It's not so easy to simply um, pull a congressional district, an online sample from a congressional district. That's something yeah. that um, that is a challenge and, and not always not always possible. Um, and if you're talking about it, you know, even smaller kinds of races, when those folks do polling all the time, it's basically, you know, it's probably in, in, impossible at this stage or almost impossible at this stage. So um, now that probably won't be true forever, but that'll that's probably true for the short term. There's also a lot of other information, political information on a voter file that is attached to phone numbers that, you know, is not always attached to an online panel. Again, if you were able to match the voter file to online panel, which you can now, but it's just not as as consistent, it doesn't save you. Also, it doesn't. It's not quite as much of a cost savings to make it worth that that effort. Then you can get that political information that people want. The you know turnout scores that that people add, the vote history, primary history, party registration, all that kind of stuff. But um, if you're just using sort of an online panel that's out there available to anybody, then you won't get that information. And campaigns really need it. And that's that's another reason that people are, have not made the made that move over there. So the web stuff, this is all sort of uh, continues to be the exciting, brave new world of research. And we will, of course, dear listeners, uh, keep you up to date with the latest fun findings on that front. Oh, yeah. Um, and also, APOR, someone tells us, someone tweeted, they are having a web survey methodology um, I, is it a webinar or a hangout or an event? They're going to have pretty big on the webinars. I, I think APOR is really into that. Yeah, I think that's good. So you, folks should check it out if they want to learn more from folks who are truly the experts and all of that and figuring out what that means for response rates and all that jazz. So Margie, happy fall equinox. Today is the uh, official transition to fall. Um, I am of the opinion that solstices are cooler than equinoxes. Um, for obvious last name <laughs> purposes. Um, but today is the official end of summer and the start of fall. I celebrated yesterday by having a pumpkin spice latte, my first and probably only of the season, uh, because, you know, I just felt like it was, I've, I've been brainwashed by consumerism and uh, also needed to have some kind of positive association with pumpkin spice after my harrowing pumpkin spice Hershey kiss debacle a few weeks ago (laughs) um but took a look at some polling so fall is my favorite of the holidays um and i was heartened to discover that i am not alone so in 2013 yougov asked a question what season is best and fall was the consensus choice um but there are big generation gaps on this question so older people those 55 and older they prefer spring 37 percent of those 55 and older say spring is their favorite season Only one out of five say summer, and a measly 4% say winter. But among younger people, 18 to 34-year-olds, summer is actually the most popular season at 30%, followed by fall at 26, spring at 20, and winter at 13. Um, But overall, because uh, fall is the one where there's not really a big generation gap, everybody kind of is okay with fall. It comes out on top in the poll. Yeah, no, well, that's not a surprise to me. I mean, fall, I think fall is the best, too. I think, well, they're they're all pretty good except for winter. I guess I have the attitudes in this regard of, like, a 65-year-old. But, um, but, but like, winter was the last among all age groups. I mean, winter was last no matter how old you were and for absolutely good reason. 
Yes, yes. So, um, but I, I agree. I agree with America for once, and I believe that fall truly is the best. Um, especially if you have a seventy degree fall day, then that really is the best. The like forty uh, degree fall days, then that kind of feels like winter. But the, the yeah, nice yeah. mild fall days are really truly beautiful. I mean, fall is the best too because you have back to school shopping. I don't even go to school anymore, and I kind of want to go back to school shopping every year. And you get football and leaves change, and it's it's just wonderful. So, uh, alas, I'm, I'm excited. Halloween, Halloween's my favorite. Oh, Halloween's pretty great. I think Halloween's one of those holidays that is a lot of fun when you're a kid, and then when you become like a young adult, but you don't have kids yet, it's like, um, okay, I guess I'll find a costume and go out with my friends. But then once you have kids again, it's like. A whole new holiday. Oh, it is such a joy. The people in my neighborhood, I don't know. I mean, it's like, maybe they do this everywhere in the suburbs. I don't know. But like every house is like a haunted house. I mean, people are outside dressed like zombies and with animatronic things popping out and like (laughs) bloody arms and like all kinds of crazy stuff. Like every single house. I'm like, how how long have you guys all been working on these these things? And so, I, I mean, I guess that's what people do. But I mean, I'm just, I was just amazed last year so i can't wait for it to happen again this year oh margie sometimes when you talk about stuff going on in your neighborhood in relation to the polls on this show it makes me a little nervous but that actually makes me want to go (laughs) so goes on when it comes to halloween tacoma park we're on we're on track we're that one we're on (laughs) we're the mainstream (laughs) all right so last but not least um the death of the email uh this week a pretty interesting analysis came out from Mailer Mailer, analyzing the subject lines of more than 1.2 billion messages um, to identify trends in subject lines. Um, Mailer Mailer has, is, I believe, a, an email marketing analysis uh, firm, and they find that actually the ideal subject line length um, is one that puts your subject around 20 to 40 characters. Um, they found that, that the emails with the best open rates actually have uh, you know, subject lines that are four to 15 characters long, really, really, really short. Um, so the shorter, the better for sure. And then email marketers, they found that there's this interesting curve when you plot how many, uh, email or how many emails get sent out by professional marketers that have subject lines of certain, there's this like peak right around, you know, 21 to 40 characters that, uh, that seems to be the ideal. So if you're sending out an email to people and you want them to open it, Keep the subject line short and sweet. Uh, this is something that I am really bad at, but now having seen this polling, uh, I will I will correct my behavior. Um, and of course, people are still using email a lot, but actually, you know, texting and messaging apps, things like Snapchat, have kind of started nosing their way in there. I was really surprised when I was doing some of that research on young voters to sit down. You know, I do these focus groups, and I'd say like, well. How often do you, you know, talk to someone on the phone? And they all look at me like, huh, yeah, no, that doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> but and what? Then I'd, say, I'd be like, well, but how often do you use email? And they'd all, especially the younger respondents, were like, uh, sometimes for work, I guess. But, like, I never email my friends. And I always email my friends. Like, that's a major way I keep in touch with them. Um, but apparently for younger people nowadays, um, sending an email message, significantly less popular than sending or receiving text messages um, and uh, things, you know, some of these new apps like Snapchat and stuff have only been growing. So if you want to reach young people, first, don't email them, text them. But if you do, 
keep your email subject line pretty short. That's good. That's good advice. I once posted something, uh, you know, that I was like hiring or I had a campaign or client who was hiring, can't remember, and I wrote uh, a status about it on Facebook and I said, no IMs, please. And, <laughs> and someone wrote, are people applying for jobs by IM now? <laughs> and I said, yes. Last time I did this, someone did try to respond by, you know, Facebook Messenger and uh, no, I don't respond that way. But uh, but I do respond by email. How else could people find us if they are looking for us, Kristen? Uh, you can find us on Twitter at uh, at the pollsters, or you can find us individually. Margie is at Margie O'Meara, and I'm at K. Soltis Anderson. You can find us at thepollsters.com or on Facebook, where we're always posting the latest and greatest polls that we find um, in the weeks as we're preparing for the show. You can subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher, whether that be Stitcher, iTunes. Don't forget to write a review. Thank you to everyone who already has. Um, and Margie, uh, I guess we will. I'll see you next week. Okay. See you next week. You've reached the Holiday Helpline. We turn the holidays into holidays. Hi, there's only 1,256 hours until Christmas, and we haven't even started our wish list yet. Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy has everyone's favorite winter gear, like $5 tees, $10 thermals, $15 sweaters, and $20 outerwear. Time out. $5 tees? Yes, plus thousands of other styles start at 5 bucks too. Amazing cold weather deals are already here at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. We're going to Old Navy. Turn your holiday into a holiday. Get to Old Navy today. Valid 1030 to 117. Select styles in stores only.